When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Getting into college was once a normal teenage rite of passage. Now it's a global hunger games. You're competing against the kid at the best school in Singapore. Slate and Panoply are here to help. Our new podcast, Getting In, follows a group of seniors through the college application process in real time. Along the way, the students and listeners will get advice from experts with decades of experience. Getting In, a podcast about demystifying college admissions and finding the right fit for every student. Available in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Mom and Dad are Fighting is sponsored by Frank Einstein and the Brain Turbo, the third installment in the hilarious New York Times bestselling children's book series filled with inventions, science experiments, and baseball-playing robots. By former National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, John Cheska, and mad scientist illustrator, Brian Biggs. That's Frank Einstein and the Brain Turbo, on sale now from Amulet Books. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, where we are inspired every day by the joys and miracles of family life. Right, Allison? Huh? It's Thursday, September 24th, and this is the Two Truths and a Lie edition. Allison, do you think my new catchphrase will get Oprah's attention? Oh, yes, I am sure. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who's 10, and Harper, who's 8. I'm Allison Benedict, soon to be Oprah's new star. Yes. Uh, also an editor at Slate, mom of Harry 6, Sam 4, and Wally 2. Hey. Hi. So on today's episode, we're going to talk to Megan Walbert, who writes the Foster Parent Diary on the New York Times Motherload site about her experience raising a foster son alongside her biological son. Then we'll discuss letting kids help out around the house and make a mess with Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure. Plus, triumphs and fails, and a whole shitload of great suggestions from listeners to help Allison ask her kids how their day was without actually asking them. 
But first, if you live within a 600-mile radius of Washington, D.C., good news. We are doing our first ever D.C. live show. So load up the minivan and hit the road to join us. It is Tuesday, October 20th at 7 p.m. at Woolly Mammoth in downtown D.C. We will have special guests to be announced soon. Plus, Allison's mom is going to be there. And, <laughs> and also, dad, and dad. And dad, and I bet also Momfina. So anyways, <laughs> come watch Allison's anxiety about all those parents being there manifest as uncontrollable Nixonian onstage sweating. Slate Plus members get 30% off tickets. Go to slate.com slash live to learn more. Please join us. We can't wait to see you there. All right, let's move on to triumphs and fails. Allison. Okay, I have a really good fail this week. Uh, Great. I knew I was failing as I, as I was committing the fail, and yet I persisted. So, as you all know, we moved. The kids are kind of having a tough time. I'm having a kind of tough time with them having a kind of tough time. Although, newsflash, things were getting better for Harry. But Great. So, in the first few weeks of school, though, Harry would mention to me in a very matter-of-fact way that he didn't have anyone to play with at recess or that he was usually playing alone. He didn't seem you know, terribly upset about this, but he was just kind of saying it. And of course, it made me feel sick to my stomach. Uh, And one day he mentioned this kid, Jack, who he said was the nicest kid in school. And I asked if they played together. And he said no. And I asked, you know, would you see him at recess? Do you talk to him? And he said, I see him. I don't talk to him. But I, I happened to know Jack's mom, who is a lovely person. And I so I like immediately emailed her to set up a play date. And she said yes, and I was super excited about this, and Harry was, I think, open to it. <laughs> and It really sounds like a triumph so far, Allison, like nothing could possibly So here it comes. The fail here is that I cared so much about this play date going well. Like I kind of felt like everything is riding on this one play date, which can you, can you now sense that it's turning <laughs> into a fail? Uh, so I actually took off a bit early from work that day so that I could sort of facilitate the fun uh, and make sure that the play date was fun. I asked our sitter to take Sam and Wally out so that they wouldn't be there bugging Harry and Jack and so that Harry and Jack could just have a fun time hanging out, guys being guys without being bothered, except I was there. Right. And instead of just letting them hang out, I suggested, oh, let's go for ice cream and I'll take you to the bookstore. And I bought them each a book and... I, you know, I sort of tried to hang back for some of it, but they were maybe not having a ton to talk about. So I then started chatting and trying to facilitate conversation the whole time. I think Jack had a great time with me. Yeah. <laughs> he really liked me. It does sound me. like you had a great play date with Jack. <laughs> yes. But I have no idea if he likes Harry or if Harry likes him or if they clicked. It's not like a tragic failure. I'm sure they can hang out again without me around. And Harry is starting to make some friends on his own, but it was definitely, you know, it's embarrassing to me now that I did that. Yeah, I hear you. I definitely have been guilty of of over-managing playdates because I felt like I really wanted them to work out because I liked the parent or because I just thought the kid was really great or because I was worried about my kid. But it, this does seem like a survivable fail. This seems, yeah. Unless Jack goes back and is like, oh, Harry's mom is so interested in me, and then you never see that kid again. <laughs> right. I think that you'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I have a triumph this week. Okay. Um, it's a triumph that doesn't even involve my children at all. Hmm. So uh, regular listeners uh, know that one of my, uh, my hobby horses, one thing that I get annoyed about sometimes, uh, is the assumptions that people make about dads, right? That we are 
genial tuned out doofuses um, that we you know, we're not really that involved with our kids and we show up to child raise every once in a while. And we don't know what to do. Oh, I'm just a dad. So last fall, uh, you may recall, I yelled on this podcast about, you know, the totally innocuous, good hearted dad magazine. And the woman who writes it made fun of me on Twitter for for responding as literally like not all dads. But in fact, not all dads only talk about sports and traffic and more to the point consigning all dads to that role uh, as your default response only propagates the dumb gender divide that sees women doing more family work than men. Anyways. I feel like you're mansplaining. Here's the point. Let me, and now that I've mansplained my feeling about when men are not all dads. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> I volunteered this week, yesterday, in fact, at my kid's beautiful new school uh, in the library because <laughs> as it's a new school, there are no books in the library yet. Um, so parents are there helping, like, b unboxing books and sorting them out by age and uh, putting them in recommended piles and then scanning them into inventory. So I show up for my volunteer shift, and it's me and the library assistant, who's this very nice woman, and a whole bunch of moms, just me and a bunch of moms. And as you know, Allison, I'm, I'm like a book guy. I read books. I write about books. I edit our books coverage. I pay a lot of attention to children's books. So I was pretty psyched to help out with all these books. And all the moms were like, oh, great, a guy. Can you assemble those library carts? So I assembled the library carts. And then there were like seven of them. I assembled them all. And then I was like, okay, I'm ready to do some stuff with books. And they were like, okay, well, here's a scanner gun. You'll really like this. You get to scan books. We'll all be over here sorting them out by age. So I'm just scanning the books, boop, 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 boop. And these moms are discussing, like, is this book for third graders or kindergartners? Which is a question I, I honestly could answer pretty quickly. So my triumph, Allison, is that I didn't say anything. I swallowed my pride, and I just helped out wherever I could. I did not actually them. I did not pull a power move. I did not give them a lecture about dads. I just scanned and scanned, and then I went home. And my triumph is that I did not alienate any of these, I'm sure, very nice parents uh, who were just trying to sort out the library and what they viewed as the most efficient way and give me a job that they thought I would like. And you were still helpful. I was. I think I was still helpful, but I was definitely resentful. And whatever. <laughs> I know that m that my struggle is not such a big deal. I know that the... Right. You don't actually have to like your role right. in the volunteering. But I, I mean, I understand why that was frustrating. But Right. And I know that like more broadly, the quote unquote prejudices that I face are like not that big of a deal as compared to the prejudices that everyone who's not me faces. But it still sucks. <laughs> okay, good one. All right. Let's move on to a word from our sponsor. Abrams Books, and Frank Einstein and the Brain Turbo. It's the third installment in the hilarious New York Times best-selling children's book series filled with inventions, science experiments, and baseball-playing robots. It's by John Cheska, who you probably know very well. He's the author of a, a million amazing children's books, and it's illustrated by mad scientist Brian Biggs. The six-book series follows the adventures of kid inventor and scientist Frank Einstein, his best friend Watson, and his two robots, Clink and Clank. It is great for middle-grade readers who are really interested in the way things work and in taking things apart and putting them back together and experimenting with science. In book three, Frank Einstein and the Brain Turbo, kid genius and inventor Frank Einstein's quest is to unlock the power behind the science of the human body to help his friend be a better baseball pitcher. It's full of cool human body facts. It's delightfully illustrated, and it is super fun. Frank Einstein and the Brain Turbo. Check it out. 
And of course, if you like the show, please like us on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. You can ask questions or request topics. And in fact, our first topic on today's show came in as a Facebook request. Take it away, Allison. We thought we were ready, but of course we weren't. Not really, because how could we be? To add to your family in such an abrupt way, to take in a child who comes with only himself, one box full of his own possessions, and a fear of sleeping in the room you've carefully prepared for him, is jarring at best and heartbreaking at worst. It is hard. So writes Megan Walbert, the biological mother of one son, five-year-old Ryan, and, since this past spring, the foster mother of another, three-year-old Blue Jay. Megan has been writing about her foster parenting experience for the New York Times parenting blog Motherload, and on her website, phase3oflife.com. And she's joining us on the phone from Pennsylvania today. Hi, Megan. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. So to start, can you tell us a little about your family and what went into your decision to become a foster parent and what you did sufficiently or insufficiently to prepare for the day your foster son, Blue Jay, came into your life? Yeah, well, you know, my husband, Mike, and I, after we had our first son, Ryan, we sort of always intended to continue to grow our family. Um, we had talked from very early on in our marriage about the possibility of adoption at some point. We didn't know, you know, what road we would take to get there or what that would look like. But when Ryan was just a few years old, we moved across the country from Arizona, where we had met, back to the East Coast, where we're both originally from. And at that time, you know, it was just a, a long process of moving and, and job searching and, you know, buying a home. And by the time we got settled and, you know, got Ryan into preschool, we just sort of felt like we weren't ready to have another baby. Um, but we still wanted to grow our family. So we talked again about adoption and we explored all different types of adoption, from international adoption to domestic private adoption and foster care adoption, which, you know, adoption through the foster care system does happen in some cases. We weighed the pros and cons, and ultimately we've, we decided that pursuing um, becoming a licensed foster family was the option that seemed to make the most sense for us. So in order to start preparing, you know, we did a lot of research on it. Um, we found an agency in our area. Uh, we began the, the licensure process, which includes, you know, hours of training, a um, home study, lots of different background clearances, all of that kind of stuff. And, and that process moved along pretty nicely and was fairly easy um, as long as you stay organized with it. But I guess what we couldn't really prepare for as sufficiently was sort of the emotional aspect of it. Um, one of our, I guess, reservations from the beginning about becoming a licensed foster family was we didn't know anybody in real life who had done it. So we didn't have a whole lot of, I don't want to say support, because we do have the support of our friends and family, but we just didn't have any of that personal connection to the foster care system. And so we were sort of emotionally going in blind, even though logistically we were well-educated on the process. So, you know, while we were able to get the room ready for Blue Jay and we were able to make sure that we had, you know, the right car seats and make sure that we had the fire extinguishers in the right places and we were able to do all of that with no problem, but I think emotionally we weren't as prepared as I would have liked to have been. You write a lot in your diary about the diary that's on, on Motherload about uncertainty, uncertainty about the circumstances of Blue Jay's life before he came to you, uncertainty, uncertainty about his birth mother, uncertainty about your you know, ability to handle foster parenting. And 
mostly or often about uncertainty about Blue Jay's future and your family and his future in general. Is that sort of the defining state of being a foster parent, a life of uncertainty? That's what it feels like to me. You know, I often tell people the only thing certain in our situation is that nothing is certain. And that's hard for me personally because I'm just sort of a type A, organized, like to have all my ducks in a row, like to sort of control my own destiny as much as possible sort of person. So for me in particular, that part of it, the not knowing what's going to happen at the next court date, the not knowing if he's going to be here for Halloween, should I be getting him a Halloween costume, all of those things is just is hard for me just because of my own temperament, my own personality, but it's also hard as a parent because, you know, you have young children who are old enough to understand enough that they know this is a unique situation. They know this is not how every child lives, and they have questions for you, and Ryan wants to know how long Blue Jay will live with us, and Blue Jay wants to know why he's still living in our house. And, you know, they ask you these questions, and you, you want to be truthful with them, and you want to be reassuring, but sometimes it's hard to be both truthful and reassuring at the same time. In your relationship with Blue Jay, how does that uncertainty manifest itself? Do you find yourself holding back a little bit so that you don't, like, give him this life that he can't continue or he might not continue? Or do you just sort of, are you just sort of all in? I think I'm emotionally all in. You know, I try very hard to spend one-on-one time with each of them, both Blue Jay and Ryan. You love him the same way. I I love Blue Jay the same way that I love Ryan. I guess where I might hold back a little bit is in terms of those things that you do want to plan. I am somebody, type A, like I said, who starts Christmas shopping in October. And so it's things like that where, you know, do I start buying him Christmas gifts? Do I create a wish list for him like I have for Ryan? It's more logistical things like that for me, um, more so than the emotional part. Although I will say that it did take me a little bit of time before I sort of bonded to him, you know, the same way that I think a lot of parents of newborns, you know, some bond instantly and, and some, it takes a little bit longer. And for me, it took a little bit. I had to get to know him a little bit. And then there was sort of that epiphany moment, similar to what I had with Ryan, where I was just like, I'm just in love with you. You're a great kid, you know? Uh, You, it sounds like your path, I mean, that you're approach this as kind of a path to adoption, whether that is with Blue Jay or I don't know if in the future, you know, you may foster another child. But is that, you know, do you feel like that sets you up in a different way than someone who is bringing in a foster child for a period of time and then attempting to bring, you know, sort of not not thinking long term toward, toward adoption? I Yeah, I think it affects your heart. You know, yeah. I think I think there there are a lot of amazing families that that do this, you know, that do the temporary foster care where they they really do intend to take in, you know, multiple children oftentimes for a period of time. And once those children, you know, are reunited with their biological family, they'll bring in, you know, another set of siblings or another child. Um, and that's that's amazing and wonderful. But I do think if you're going into it with that mindset, you are probably, it's just framed a little bit differently in your mind. I know for us, our our ultimate desire is to grow our family permanently. So, you know, while we understand that, you know, that may not be the case with Blue Jay, he, he very, very well might go back to his biological family. And if, 
if that is what happens and, and that's what a court deems is in his best interest, then we absolutely support that 100%. But, of course, you know, there, there is a part of us that does hope to adopt, whether it's him or whether it's a foster child in the future. And, and Mike and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, if or when he is reunited with his family, do we do this again? You know, was this harder than we thought it was going to be? Is this what we expected? Could we, could we start all over? And we just honestly don't know. Um, and I think it, we would have to sort of live with the empty space of him for a little while until we can figure out whether that was just a space that he was meant to fill for that, you know, time period in our lives or whether we really are still meant to grow our family. It seems like the other thing that you can't know until it happens, as you say, is what happens when he's gone and how hard is that? I mean, it seems to me that the the thing that you can't know and that you won't know, but that might be the most difficult thing of all is, is if you've gone all in emotionally with loving this child, what happens when that kid is gone? And so do you have any, have you had any way to prepare for that possibility or, or to prepare Ryan for that possibility? Basically, the way Ryan thinks of it is that Blue Jay's mom and dad miss him and love him, but Blue Jay just can't live with, with them right now. And so they need, he needed to come live with another family, and we said, well, you know, we have space in our family. You can come stay here with us. And he knows um, and sometimes asks me, he's been here for a long time. I thought he was just going to be here for a little while. And, of course, at the beginning we thought it was just going to be for a little while, and it has gotten a little bit longer and longer as the process has gone on. So, yeah, preparing him for it has, you know, he's, he is confused about it. And we just say, you know, we don't know. But, you know, he is welcome to stay here as long as his mom and dad need him to stay here. As for preparing ourselves emotionally, I, I don't know that we can, you know, because we, we knew sort of up front, I mean, from the moment you met him, he's such a charming kid, um, amazing and sweet, and you just sort of knew as soon as you met him that, you know, you're going to fall in love with this kid. And you can either hold yourself back and protect yourself, or you can just take a leap of faith and say, regardless of whether he stays with us or not, he's always going to be a part of our hearts and a, a part of our, our family in our hearts. And so you just take a little bit of a risk, I guess, the same way you do with anything in life. Like one of the ways that I tried to prepare, you know, some of our family, you know, of course our, our families, some family members were a little concerned when they first heard that we were planning to go this route because they were afraid that we would get our hearts broken. But the way I sort of described it to them then and what I tell myself now is there is no guarantee in life no matter what way you parent. People have miscarriages all the time. People have young children who are diagnosed with cancer. People lose their babies. They lose their, they lose their children. They lose their adult children. You know, we lose loved ones all the time. It doesn't stop you from loving. You know, it's, it's not a reason not to grow your family, and it's not a reason to not put yourself out there and take a risk. Have you found in your sort of, in your relationship with other parents, um, is there, like, are people curious about your situation? Do you, are you open about it? Does it set you apart? I do feel, it, you know, it's, it's funny because Ryan was an only child for, you know, four and a half years. And for a long time, especially as he was starting to get a little bit older, I started to feel a little bit disconnected from other parents because most everybody around me was starting to have two and three kids. So I started to feel almost a little bit out on the fray because I had an only child, and it's just in, in my circle of 
friends and family, you know, that was a bit of an anomaly. So in the, on the one respect, I do connect with some people more now with the understanding of what it takes to parent more than one child. It's, at least for me, has been drastically different than parenting one. But there is a disconnect then in terms of, you know, but they're always going to be your kids. And, you know, one of mine is always going to be my kid, but the other one may not be. And so there's most people have been very, very supportive, but, of course, they are curious. And I do get asked a lot of questions. And, you know, I try to go to friends for advice on, you know, what are you doing? They're fighting over a toy because I'm, I'm, I'm literally learning this, you know, just flying by the seat of my pants. There was no buildup to it for me. It was just like, boom, now you have a, a four-year-old and a three-year-old, and, and they're going to argue over toys, and they're going to, who's going to get in the car first, and all that stuff that I just had never dealt with before. And, you know, some of my friends will say, well, you just, you know, I always tell them, he's always going to be your brother. You just, you know, you just got to deal with it. And I said, yeah, but I can't say that (laughs) because he might not always be his brother. So it's, there are certain things where I do feel like it, it connects me and brings me closer to some people. But then there's also a bit of a disconnect with, you know, people just can't fully, I think until you've done it, you can't sort of fully understand how that uncertainty sort of into every aspect of your of your parenting. Since you started writing, have you found other foster parents to connect with and to talk to? That has been the very best part of writing that series and was one of the main reasons why I wanted to do it in the first place. Um, because like I said, you know, we don't have anybody in our in our real life that, that we know closely that has fostered. So and and also you know, not being able to find, not even just not knowing somebody personally, but there's just not a lot out there, you know, because of privacy concerns and because you have to be very, very careful about how much and what types of information you put out there publicly, there's just not, there, there aren't a lot of personal stories out there that you can find. So I really wanted to change that a little bit. I wanted to get the dialogue going a little bit more because so many people don't understand how how this process works, and it is isolating. So writing this series has, it's opened me up to different Facebook groups, and I get emails and messages from other foster parents who share their stories with me, and I was emailing with a woman a week or two ago, and we were giving each other suggestions on different issues that we were dealing with, and that, that's been the very best part, that I've been able to find a little bit of a, of a community and a place where I can go and, you know, vent or ask questions if I'm dealing with something that I'm uncertain about. It's, it, that part has been great. Okay, Megan, thank you so much for talking to us about this. We really wish your family all the best. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, let's move on. So this week we're not going to take a listener call, but please keep calling us with your parenting questions. The number, again, is 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Really? Call us. Leave us a message. Uh, But this week I want to point out some of the amazing advice you guys sent me since the last episode uh, about how to find out more about Harry's day without actually asking him, how was your day? So if you didn't listen to the last episode, um, a brief recap, my fail was that I keep asking Harry how his day is and he keeps basically just like groaning and falling to the floor and rolling his eyes and not telling me anything about his day. He clearly hates being asked about his day and yet I can't stop myself from asking. Uh, I guess this is very common uh, because we heard Yeah, I was amazed by how many people wrote in and called in and 
and Facebooked about this. Kind of crazy. We got so many messages, so much great advice. Um, so thank you. Uh, the one that resonated the most with me and that was, I don't know, just seemed really fun and that we have started to try is the game Two Truths and a Lie. Uh, the idea is that everyone in the family takes a turn telling everyone else about two true things that happened to them that day and then one made-up thing, and then the rest of us have to guess which one is the lie. Uh, we've been doing this in the bath at night because—well, when they're in the bath and I'm bathing them because another listener suggestion was like, wait, don't ask. Don't start asking right when the day ends. They need time to decompress, which makes a lot of sense. So doing it at the end of the day seems like a good idea. Anyway, it's a really fun game. Uh, it allows them to, you know, kind of be creative, trying to out, you know, think of a really smart lie that you might not guess. It's caused a little bit of tension because they get pissed off when we actually, when someone gets their lie, like on the first guess. Do your kids do that? Like when you're playing a game like that and then, I don't know, they just like... Our I, kids really hate losing. Yeah, yeah. They yeah, view it exactly. as losing. And right. Sam happens to me, you know, he's not very good at this game. He doesn't quite get the nuances of it. So he's usually like, I ate my snack. I ate my lunch. My teacher bought me one million Lego sets. <laughs> and, and I like don't do I lie and be like, I know you didn't eat your lunch or or no, I don't. And then he gets really mad because I guess it every time. But overall, it's been a really great addition to our nightly routine. Um, and I've gotten some peace of mind knowing that Harry's doing some fun stuff in class and playing with some kids at recess. Uh, and also, I had a lot of fun because <laughs> this is going to be so strange to you listeners, but I'll just say it. We had a dog wedding at Slate. We did. We, we had did. a dog on a wedding. Recent, on a recent Friday, a full-scale dog wedding was conducted within the Slate offices. So although it didn't happen to me that day, I decided to kind of play fast and loose with time. And I... In, when we were playing the Truth, Truth, and a Lie game at night, I said, like, I had a meeting with my boss. We had a dog wedding and then some other thing. And they were like, the dog wedding? You didn't have a dog wedding. But we did. We had a dog wedding. We've also been playing Two Truths and a Lie, and I also used the dog wedding. And, in fact, I, I managed to come up with three uh, totally insane-sounding things that have all happened in my office recently and then told them, in fact, they were all true. Oh. They they yelled at me about that. Yeah, but, yeah, I, so I thought – I also thought that was really great advice. I also liked a couple of people suggested basically using a version of something we do on the podcast, which is triumphs and fails. Yep. Roses um, which, and thorns, I think someone called yeah, it. Yeah, someone called it roses and thorns. And I also, we've also been using that. Those And any way that you can basically, I mean, not to Silicon Valley this shit up, but like to gamify this experience, it like totally Disrupt works. Disrupt the how are you question. <laughs> yes, space, exactly. the how are you space. That's right. Uh, we're totally disrupting the how are you space. So anyways, thank you so much. Wait, wait, wait. I have a few oh, wait, more. more. Hold on. Oh, okay. Uh, just a few other great suggestions. This is for younger kids, I think preschool age kids, but play school with them. Let them be the teacher and that will probably act, they'll probably act out the way their actual teachers kind of run the show in their class. Play categories at dinner, like pick a category, most surprising, least interesting, most frustrating, most exciting thing that happened to you that day and everybody has to, you know, fill in the category. And then my perhaps the best suggestion, which I am also employing is to find the kid in your class who does like to talk about his or her day and pump his or her parents for info. I have definitely started doing this and I've gotten a lot of credible intel. That's a great idea. Also, now that you're best friends with Jack, you and he can maybe just go out to coffee. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can ask him what's going on <laughs> at school. 
Uh, all right. Thank you, listeners, very much for all those great suggestions. Um, and again, if you have an additional suggestion for Allison as to how to help disrupt the how was your day space as a thinkfluencer, um, give us an email at slate.com or uh, visit our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash fighting. You can leave comments there, ask us questions, uh, suggest topics for future episodes, and give Allison some good advice. All right, let's move on to our second topic. So, of course, everyone agrees that we want our children to help around the house. We don't want them to be pampered princes and princesses being waited on hand and foot. The problem is kids are really bad at stuff. They drop plates when they have to dry the dishes, like that kid in the Shel Silverstein poem. They make a big mess when they cook. They put things away in the wrong place. It is often just easier to do it myself. But Jessica Leahy says no. In a recent piece in Slate, she argues that it's okay to let kids screw up household tasks. In fact, that it's a valuable experience for them and for you. It's an excerpt from her new book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And Jess joins us to talk about it. Hi, Jess. Hey. So did your children make their own lunches this morning and like vacuum your living room and walk the dog and stuff? <laughs> they actually, he made his own, Finnegan, the younger one, made his own lunch and he did feed the dog. She sort of follows him around um, hoping he'll change up his schedule and decide suddenly to do it earlier in the morning than he usually does. But yes, he did do all that stuff this morning. Without complaining? Without complaining. And the reason he did it without complaining is that he's got a little checklist that he's got on the refrigerator that comes out of a whole longer story about forgetting his homework at school one time. Um, but that's just kind of the, the checklist of what he does in the morning, and he's kind of got it down to a little science of timing. So, yeah. All right. So the point that your piece is making is that if, if my kid has a chore to do and she's really bad at it and all I want to do is, like, just – get that plate actually clean or get those dishes actually done so that we can just move on to something else. I shouldn't do it. I should let her do it. Even if she does a shitty job. Yeah. And oh my gosh, it is so frustrating and maddening and exhausting and horrifying because they not only do they not know how to do it when they start, you'll like teach them to do something and then suddenly they'll forget completely again, which is why at one point I went down in the in the basement and took a dry erase marker to my washer and dryer and wrote the instructions for how to do it all over the machines because they kept saying they forgot, and which was driving me crazy because I taught them like 10 times. So, yeah, it's not just the first time around that they stink. They'll, they'll get better at it and then suddenly stink again. Do you think it makes sense to give the kids chores that you kind of know they can accomplish or to challenge them? Well, I mean, I go through stuff the first time around. Like, for example, um, I'm in New Hampshire, so one of the things that you have to do up here is stack wood. And stacking wood is hard. I wouldn't expect a kid to be able to get it right the first time, so I taught them how to do it. And after we did a few trial runs, our rule around here became whoever, if, if the pile you stack falls over, and believe me, I'm the queen of my wood piles falling over, whoever um, stacked that has to put it back up. And that is an enormous amount of work. So... That's become sort of our joking standard around here, that if it falls over, if it really, really stinks and you're the one who did it, you have to do it again. So it sort of gives you some some motivation to get it right the first time. So like if there's food stuck on the dishes, when they come out of the dishwasher, which just grosses my kids out, whoever is responsible for that horrendous situation has to deal with it. All right. So I have two very different kids with two very different views on household chores. That but they never both pose. Happens. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, they both pose unique 
problems and I want to pose each of these problems to you and ask for your oh suggestions. My gosh, a test. Okay. So the young, my younger daughter uh, wants to help. She loves to help. She right. is, in fact, very accomplished at many things. She has great like manual dexterity and she has she really focuses well. She gives a lot of attention to tasks, but she's also incredibly stubborn right. and believes strongly yeah. that even if she's never done a task before, her way of doing it is the right way. Right. And if you try and even teach her a different way, she she's not interested. She will not take it. So how do we get around that? How do we I mean, it is true that eventually things end up, for example, being chopped, but they're too big or they're too small or she wasted half the pepper or she sliced her thumb off or whatever like what how do we deal with that well it's easy when you know if there's a direct consequence so like if they do the laundry wrong and they leave it in the dryer overnight and their clothes are all wrinkly and they have to wear those clothes to school then they're like oh i guess i shouldn't do it that way or if they have to get the goop off the plates then they're like oh i guess i have to do it differently next time um but yeah the the wasting of the pepper thing the most, the best you can do there is just explain that, you know, like, you know, we paid money for the pepper and, you know, all these people worked to make the pepper and pick the pepper and blah, 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 and now we're wasting the pepper. You know, just having a conversation about it. But I'm guessing she's really young. How old is your daughter? She's eight. Oh, yeah. See, she's she's deep into the, like, no, 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 if I, it's my way or the highway. So she'll, I mean, there's going to probably be a point at which she's going to get better at listening to what you're saying. Can I ask, is it also possible to like adjust your own expectations? My mom was like, serious. Yeah. Well, so my mom is a serious perfectionist or is a serious perfectionist. Hey mom. Uh, And we never had to do anything really around the house because she would clean better than we could possibly clean. Uh, And so Dan, when you were describing that, I was thinking like, can't the salad be okay with like too small or too big chunks of peppers? And like, honestly, I don't think my kids would be embarrassed wearing wrinkled clothes. So can't they just wear wrinkled clothes as long as they did the clothes? Rah, rah. (laughs) Well, the other thing is at a certain point, you know, when you sit down and eat that salad and the peppers are in those gigantic pieces and she's like, I made this, you know, you guys are eating stuff I made. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing when they see the you see the look on their face, even if it's you know, it's not great or perfect or whatever. I mean, she's going to get better at it. I don't know. You have that line in your piece where you say you, you know you would willingly have endured ten broken plates for the look of pride on your son's face, and I was like, I would not endure ten broken plates. <laughs> All right, then <laughs> for a look of pride on my child's hyperbole. face. <laughs> no, you know, I, I guess stuff's going to get broken. Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to get done wrong, and I guess. The, in the end, you have to say, well, you know, what's what's the worst thing that could happen if, you know, we cook the pepper in this size? Or what's the, you know, when I know going to sleep that the laundry is still in the dryer and my kids screwed it up and now the towels are going to be all mildewy, it kills me to not go downstairs and restart the dryer or pull things out or do whatever. But I don't because I know the next day, you know, they hate it when the towels smell like because they've mildewed, but that's how they know what happens when you leave the stuff in the dryer overnight. What's Dan? What's what's the other challenge? Oh yeah, so Lyra, my older daughter, um, is exactly basically the opposite in that she she doesn't want to help. She is definitely <laughs> under the impression that anything we ever ask her to do around the house is a gigantic imposition. Oh yeah, because well, isn't that our job? That's our job. Her job yeah. is to is to whatever is to read. And our job is to do the stuff around the house. And so how do you suggest sort of beginning to broach these ideas 
Because basically right now we have her do things when we ask her to do them, but we don't really have regular chores for her because she would never do them and it would be such a huge pain in our asses. Well, here's the deal. It, the, actually, the more infrequent the responsibilities are, the harder it is to get them to do them. So, like, there are certain chores around our house that are seasonal and hated. Um, the one I'm thinking about right now is outside the window right now. We have some apple trees, and there are apples all over the ground, and they turn into mush, and the wasps show up, and then it's just gross. And so getting the kids to do those, because that's not, like, something they're used to doing every day or every week, is actually harder um, and I have to endure, like, an hour of moaning before he'll go out and just do it. But the stuff that they sort of have to do on a regular basis is just like, oh, yeah, this is the thing that I do. And, yeah, every once in a while they're going to complain about it. But um, it's, it, the problem is when things are infrequent that, that you're going to run into major problems. So do you have a suggestion as to how to introduce it to her in the first place? Like, what, you know, what should I say to her when she's like, well, you never made me do this stuff before? Yeah, I mean, that's a problem, is, is getting into that first one. And, you know, you, you just got to stick with the explanation that, you know, we're all part of a family and we all do, you know, stuff to make the family go. And, and that's why I'm, I'm a huge advocate of not paying for chores, because, you know, chores, do, household duties are things we do because we're a part of the family and we all have to, you know, I, I cook and my husband cleans up after me and, you know, that's, just sort of how things work in our family, and that's that's part of being a family. And and then you got to just say, and that's our expectation. And if you're not going to do it, here's the consequence: you don't have this thing done by three days from now. Like for example, the apple things have to be picked up by Wednesday when I mow the lawn, so they don't turn into applesauce. So if it's not, you can do whatever you want. You can do it by the light of the moon if you want. But if it's not done by Wednesday, then X happens. And then you got to actually do act. <laughs> <laughs> so for I, could par- be, I could hear that pair going, oh, yeah, consequences, follow through. That's so hard. It is hard. Yeah. Because every consequence makes life more difficult for us. I know. Every possible consequence I can imagine just ends up making my life more of a pain in the ass. Yeah, I know. But I mean, doing all this stuff yourself and handing over a lollipop every time makes makes life so much easier. Everyone's quieter. Everyone gets along better. But in the meantime, you're always going to have to do all that stuff you don't want to do. I hate picking the apples up in the backyard and I hate stacking wood. Um, but that, you know, it's, which is one of the reasons I gave it to the kids as one of the things they need to do. Um, but best case scenario, they do it and you don't have to think about it anymore. And, um, you know, you help them learn how to be responsible and part of a family unit and how give them a purpose. I mean, kids are sick and tired. I have to say of having no purpose. They may say they don't want to do chores, but, you know, watch there be a crisis. There's a story in the book where there was a crisis where a car swerved off the driveway and the kids had to help put it back on the driveway. And, you know, they were like, they were like ninjas, these kids. They were so excited to have a job and a purpose and to help. And, you know, it, it's good for them. Okay, I have two questions. Yeah. One is, uh, my kids are really big on, okay, we'll do this thing if you do it with us. Do you yeah. just have to, like, not allow that? Like, yeah. uh, I mean, other than the sort of showing them how to do it, you have to know I'm not doing this with you. Yeah, no, sucka. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, that's quick. And then the other is obviously Dan's family is kind of a lost cause at this point, but a lot of our listeners have young kids. Mm-hmm. And I think probably most of us have, like, the best intentions when we have, like, a two-year-old and we're right, thinking, right, right, right. we're going to, you know, we're not going to be those parents who do everything for our kids. We're going to make our, you know, we're going to have a work wheel. Right. When do you start it? 
Yeah, I, I mean, ideally, it's just part of the deal early on. Like, my sister was actually really good about that. Like, if you're going to play with something, you put it away. I'm terrible about that. And that, frankly, you, you pick your battles, too. So, like, for me, the kids' rooms are their domain, and they can be as messy as they want um, until, basically, until it spills out of the room and drives me crazy, and then, you know, we have a conversation about hygiene. But otherwise, you know, that's their room, and, and I don't care what they do with it. They're not expected to make their beds, and their rooms can be gross. But outside of that tiny personal space, they are part of a household, and they help. And we talk about it. I mean, you have to talk about it. You have to explain things to kids. Kids hate it when you just tell them to do stuff just because. You know, you got to explain that, you know, I do this, Daddy does that, um, you know, your brother does this, and you do that, and that's your job. And that's fair. And kids like fair. They really, really do. So overall, the message is we're in our kids' shit too much. We need to <laughs> let them figure it out themselves, even if that means that messes get made in life and at home. I guess the overall message is long-term over short-term. You know, what's your goal? Is your goal crust-free plates, or is your goal that, you know, in six months you don't even have to unload the dishwasher or load the dishwasher, and your kid actually knows how to do that thing? Same with cooking. Like, watch a kid be totally stoked when they can make you dinner. It's pretty amazing. I'm going to send that dinner back when the peppers are cut too big. Yeah, it sounds like you would do that, wouldn't you? (laughs) All right. The book is called The Gift of Failure. We'll have links to buy it on our show page, which is at slate.com slash mom and dad, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Thank you so much, Jessica Leahy. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Let's move on to recommendations. Allison, what do you got this week? My recommendation is this flat toy guitar that my parents bought our kids that has one song and one song only loaded onto it, which is... Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> it is insane. It's part of this series of paper jams guitars, jams with a Z. And I don't really have anything else to say about it other than it is quite amusing to watch your two-and-a-half-year-old walk around playing Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster um, Cult. Amusing <laughs> for how long, Allison? Uh, if you would like that particular pleasure, we'll link to the thing on our show page. It's not a good toy, but it's it's great. I hope, and you have to play us out to Don't Fear the Reaper, which is in my head all the time now. Yeah. Damn. All right. My <laughs> recommendation uh, does not involve the song Don't Fear the Reaper. Um, it is a game that we invented. We, I, I'm pretty sure we invented this along with our in-laws, the previously mentioned great uh, Emily and Gray. We invented this game long before we had kids, in fact, but we have discovered that playing it with kids is really, really fun. Uh, it's a great game to get kids talking about things in their lives. We also have used it uh, at after school time to talk about your day. Uh, and also, it's great a great way to get kids to listen to parents talk a little bit about things in their lives in a way that they often don't. The game is called Ace of Hates. And here's how you play. You take a regular deck of cards uh, and one person draws one of those cards and they don't let uh, anyone else uh, around the table see the card. Uh, That card, whatever you pick, represents a certain point along the continuum of liking to disliking from absolute love, which is the ace of a red card like hearts or diamonds, to just sort of loving, which is like a three or four of a red card, to kind of disliking, which is a three or four or five of a black card, a a club or spade, all the way to absolute total hatred, which is the ace of clubs or the ace of spades. Um, Then without revealing your card, you say something to the table that you 
you feel that way about. So like the five of loves might be like watching baseball on TV and drinking a, a beer, but a light beer. Uh, or Allison, if you drew like the jack of clubs, the jack of hates, you might be like what? Oh my God, this is when Dan puts game. me on the spot in the podcast. <laughs> jack of clubs is like basically hate something, but not hate it as much as you can possibly hate it. Right. Um, that television show uh, about reality TV that Julia really likes. Unreal. Unreal. You jack of you jack of hates unreal. Yeah. That's great. That's a great one. Your kids have no idea, but they'll be so interested to learn that about you. <laughs> so then the other people around the table try and guess your card based on what they know about you and what they know about your likes and dislikes. Uh, and then the person who guesses the closest wins the card and the first person to collect five cards or whatever, some number, who the person who knows the other people in the family best wins the game. So it is a really super fun game. It's a totally enjoyable way to share things that you love and that you hate uh, with your family. And it, I've, just, I've found that it never becomes mean-spirited. It always becomes people jokingly talking about things that frustrate them or make them angry or that they really genuinely like. Uh, and it inspires conversation and, of course, gets kids angry when they don't win. But whatever. They can't help it that they're not as good at it. And how can our listeners purchase this game? Uh, well, eventually I'm going to become a millionaire when I manufacture it myself. Yeah. But for now, you can purchase it by just buying a deck of cards because that's what you play it with. No, but this is actually a very good idea and Ace of Hates is a great title. I know. So I'm registering copyright via this podcast right now so no one else steal this idea, please. All right, that's our show. Please email us at slate.com to suggest topics, to recommend books or guests or whatever. And also, like our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash fighting. Uh, you can discuss this week's episode. You can see our recommendations, uh, including that deck of cards that you can purchase from us uh, and more. Uh, please subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Mom and Dad are Fighting and leave a comment or rating while you're there. That really helps people find the show. And of course, if you like the show, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a frenemy, tell everyone you know. Mom and Dad are Fighting is part of the Panoply Network. See our full roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our great intern, Jesse Chasen Tabor. Thanks to the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers. Thanks to our guests, Jessica Leahy and Megan Walbert. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. The seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind, the sun, or the rain. We can be like they are. Come on, baby, don't fear the reaper. Baby, take my hand. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.